Welcome to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network, a show that streams health, happiness, and hope to the kidney community. You can download all Kidney Talk shows from iTunes and find a variety of resources to help you navigate this illness at rsnhope.org. Please welcome your host, Lori Hartwell, who has lived with kidney disease since the age of two. Well, welcome to Kidney Talk. Today, we're going to be speaking about a subject that I've always been very curious about. And it's really talking about different policies around the world and how they choose to treat organ donors and recipients. And one of the big things is, should you be an opt-in system or an opt-out system? And the U.S. is an opt-in system where we you know, basically decide if we want to be an organ donor. And other countries such as Spain and others have where you're automatically an organ donor. And today I'm really excited about it because I'm going to be speaking to Tom Moan. He's the chief executive officer of One Legacy. And we're going to go over an article that's coming out in the Journal of American Medical Association uh, about this topic. And uh, welcome to the show, um, Tom. Laurie, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. So tell us what uh, inspired you and Alexandria Glazier to research and write about the topic about organ donation and practices around the world. Yeah, You know, every year or two in some state across the nation, um, some very well-meaning legislators uh, have introduced bills to change their state organ donation system from the what is now the uniform across the U.S., opt-in system to an opt-out system, and they inevitably say this is because it works so much better than our opt-in system, and everybody who can be will be a donor, Mm -hmm. or so they think. Um, And every time these come up, we uh, have to spend a good deal of time educating them to the reality of the relative success of our opt-in system and the opt-out systems around the world. Uh, So we thought we'd put this in writing um, rather than doing this one-offs and hopefully educate a lot more people. All at once. Well, tell really uh, for people that may not be familiar, tell us the difference between an opt-in and an opt-out donation policy. What does that actually mean? So these are the underlying laws that um, countries and in the U.S. individual states uh, follow to enable organ people to uh, give the gift of life. In opt-in jurisdictions like we have here in the the United States and in probably – uh, two-thirds of the countries of the world are opt-in. It's the choice of an individual who may have registered their choice on, in a formal legal registry, like the Donate Life California registry in California, or if they have not registered, it's the choice of their immediate family next of kin at the time of their death to say, yes, we would like to donate organs and save a life. Okay. And uh, That's an opt-in system. Opt-out laws uh, say that essentially that the presumption is that Anyone who passes away who medically is capable to uh, will be an organ donor in the in the eyes of the of, of the law and the eyes of the state. And theoretically, uh, that would be unless they have formally opted out and signed a document somewhere saying they don't want to be. Um, so that's the legal difference between the two. Uh, and um, the opt-out countries, uh, the major opt-out countries, include like Spain. And France and um, Belgium and, and in a variety of about 16 or 17 countries in the world, mostly in Europe, that have that in their laws. Okay. The real question is, what do they, what, how do they really follow their laws? That, that's where the, the real truth comes out. 
Okay, so so tell us um, what did you learn with this uh, research project? Um, what we what we know is that um, in every country in the world that has opt out laws, uh, the reality is that the transplant programs and organ procurement organizations, uh, the equivalent to one legacy here in Southern California, actually always approach families to get families authorization and pretty much never take organs without that family authorization. So while they may have be in the law have the right to do so, they seldom if ever actually do so. And probably a very rational uh, recognition that you don't want to take something from a family that's in grief and the recognizing that that would not go over well in the long run. So the reality is they have opt-out laws, but but uh, but they do not actually follow the opt-out quality of it, and they uh, they always rely upon family decisions. Well, what's really interesting is you mentioned that you know when somebody passes away in the U.S. and they are eligible to be an organ donor, but you're you don't really know their wishes, that they're actually approached by somebody from the organ procurement agency. And do you often find that you get success with them deciding um, that they'll make the choice at, at that time? Because there's been so much education on this subject in the last decade. Yeah, we, we um, in the last uh, year here, or the last two or three years here at One Legacy, and, and matching numbers around the country, we find that between 70 and 75% of the time that an individual could actually be an organ donor at the time of their death, they or their family do choose to, to donate and actually do donate. So that's uh, saying almost three-quarters of the time the people can be a donor, they they do become donors. And, and of those, um, roughly 40 to 45% are registered donors, but the other 60 to 65, uh, 55% are, um, 55 to 60% are uh, family decisions to say yes. So in most of the time, almost three-quarters of the time, individuals and families say yes. Who qualifies to be an organ donor? Because if you're in a horrible accident and your your body's damaged, you're not always able to be an organ donor. So not everybody who passes away in the country uh, in an accident situation is able to donate. I think sometimes people think that everybody can be a donor, but that's not the case. Yeah, and you might think so the way we work very hard to try and get everybody to register, and there's over 155 million people registered as organ donors in the U.S., a remarkable largest registry by any uh, stretch in the world. But the reality is of the 2.7 million people who pass away each year in this country, about one-half of 1% die in such a way they can actually be donors. And that's to say they're in an, they have a major neurological injury and mm-hmm. they're in an ICU on a ventilator. Or, and, and in my case, I had one of my transplant came from a, a, a child that drowned. And it was obviously they were able to, they tried to um, sustain the child, but uh, they were brain dead. So they were able to keep them alive on life support. And so you, you have to be in a situation where you can keep the person on life support, right? Basically, well, that's... and we actually no longer like to refer to it as life support because these individuals are, uh, in fact, if, once they're declared brain dead, they are deceased. Uh, okay. So we call it mechanical support because oh, you're keeping the organs perfused and healthy while, unfortunately, an individual has passed. Um, and it, we depend upon that from the point that an individual is declared brain dead to the point that we actually um, have gone through the authorization process with the family and manage the organ donor to improve the organ function, remove some of the 
damage that happens to organs at the time of brain death and allocate the organs and get to surgery, it can be two to three days. So the ventilator support is absolutely essential because without ventilatory support, um, our, none of our organs would be any good in 20 to 30 minutes. Well, and I mean, that's what I think a lot of people don't really understand. And it's uh, it's um, not always that simple. So po- half of a percent of all the donors of the people who pass away. Well, wow, that's that's a small number. But you gave it is, a number. It is, if you, it's, it's any given year. It's, it's been judged to be between twelve and 15,000. Uh, individuals are declared brain dead and are medically viable for, to be donors. There is a small additional number, could be another um, uh, three to 4,000, maybe 5,000, who are potential um, uh, donors that are called DCD donors, which is to say they have very serious neurological injuries. They're not quite brain dead, but when families and doctors choose to um, stop treatment and let someone pass away, they choose to donate as soon as they passed away and this recovery is done immediately in the OR. But it's still at the most in the studies done through the years, we're seeing about 20,000 possible donors based upon the uh, transplant surgeon's acceptance criteria. Well, so what did you learn um, in this study that really surprised you? Well, the, uh, the results were pretty astounding. If you look at, there's about 93 countries in the world that routinely report organ donation rates um, and transplant rates on a reliable national uh, international registry. And of the, the, the about 50 of them perform above the mean uh, in terms of donors per 10,000 deaths, deaths being the one common denominator we can share with the rest of the world. We get information on death rates, national death rates uh, from every country, so we can, we can do this comparison. And of the 93, about half of them are above the mean and about half of them below the mean. And of the 50 uh, countries above the mean, the U.S. states make up, I should say, of the 50 countries and jurisdictions and states above the mean, the U.S. states make up 43 of them. Uh, oh, wow. So the U- And the U.S. as a whole um, uh, performing some, you know, very, very highly overall and uh, pretty much dominating the, um, the organ donation rates around the world. And which country is, like, leading in donations? If you look at um, in donors per, per 10,000 deaths, the country that does lead is Spain last year at 49.4 donors per 10,000 deaths. The country that is second is a country of uh, very few people, uh, a few hundred thousand people, is Iceland at 46 per 10,000 deaths. Um, and then uh, the, the U.S. as a whole comes in at 38 per 10,000 deaths. And meanwhile, the international mean is uh, right about um, 30 per 10,000 deaths, 20, yeah, 31 per 10,000 deaths. And what what do you think, do you think, well, Spain is an opt-out country. Is that the reason or is there some other reason? Actually, Spain, more than any other country, their leadership, they, they have without a doubt, um, they're the only, they're the, the one other country that has a uh, well-structured and formalized uh, and well-funded donation program is the United States. And um, their heads of their program through the year, Rafael Madison, who started that system, and Beatriz Dominguez-Gill, who runs that system today, will be the first to tell you, and have said in, in print many times, that they never rely upon opt-out. They always rely upon family decisions, and they will walk away if a family says no. Okay. What Spain has relied upon is a is developing a culture of donation and 
it is worth noting that Spain uh, and is a country that is very high proportion of uh, Catholic um, uh, religious um, followers, and Catholic, predominantly Catholic countries tend to have a higher donation rate than uh, Protestant and and um, and uh, other religious um, affiliations around the world. Uh, so there's probably a little bit of long-term religious in, in community culture, and there's a very, very well-developed system for organ donation in Spain. So tell us a little bit about, you know, what the U.S. is doing really well that you learned out of this study, because people are going to be able, we're going to put a link to the journal article uh, with this podcast so you can get more information. But uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, what you've learned, because uh, we have what, 320 million people and you said like 115 million are registered or 150 million are registered half the country. I mean, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. And I, there's no doubt about it that the, uh, Individuals of 50 states and uh, District of Columbia and Puerto Rico's donor registries are the driving force behind some of the success of our donation rates in this country. The um, U.S., by, as I mentioned earlier, has by far the most robust donor registries in the world. Very few other countries really rely upon them very much. And the thing that makes ours especially uh, valuable is that in each state, the the registry laws say that an individual has made the choice to donate. That choice cannot be contradicted by their family or their next of kin or their agents. It must be followed in exactly the same way that a last will and testament must be followed. Um, therefore, it ensures that your or my decision to donate will be fulfilled as long as we are medically viable to do so. Um, and so the, the, the value of the registry is just um, enormous to us. The um, the second part of the uh, of the system that's valuable is the fact that if someone's not registered, um, we can go to any family member and seek their authorization um, for a donor. And we don't have a system that tries to capture somebody's decision to opt out uh, that they may have made earlier years. An individual is always free to put in their advance directive that they don't want to be a donor, and that has to be followed as well. But we don't, as a system and as a public policy. Uh, the states and the state legislatures have agreed, we're not going to make it easy for someone to opt out. We're going to make it easy for them to opt in. Um, and so you get that first, as the, my colleague Alexander Glazer said, the first bite at the apple is to say, you people have chosen to register, and we get a second chance um, if they haven't chosen to register by asking their family. Well, and that's, you know, it's so important because... Uh so many of my friends, um, a couple of them, we've been talking about it, about direct donation, which a lot of people aren't aware of. But, you know, you've had a family member pass away or a friend and they're like, well, we want so-and-so to get our kidney. And I think there's a lot of misconception because Natalie Cole got a kidney, but it came that way from a direct donation. That's and, right. And um, I don't know if other countries do that as well, but I think that's also... Uh, gives a lot of hope to people who are waiting that they can help share the message and, you know, help their peers and potentially help themselves in the future if somebody has an unfortunate, uh, unfortunately passes away. Uh, yes, direct donation is a nice opportunity for families to ensure that someone in their family uh, gets the gift of life who, who needs it. Um, and it has a, um, a spin-off benefit that's just appeared in the living donation realm uh, where the ability to certainly have always in living donation and largely based upon directed donation, you know, parent gives to their child or vice versa or husband and wife and so forth. 
Um, but now the ability to uh, use kidney chains to make a an altruist donation to the chain, but secure a voucher for a family member who may need a transplant in the future, it's an indirect directed donation, um, which is seeming to help increase the amount of uh, living uh, donors in this country, and we hope it will do even more so. Oh, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. You know, I had one question about um, other countries. And in in the U.S., we identify a donor as somebody who's brain dead. But I remember many years ago, like Japan had heart death, and they were they were changing that. And what was really the unfortunate reality is that if you have to die by heart death, your other organs don't last. Um, are any other countries practicing that? So, well, we, we continue to uh, do um, recovery after cardiac death in those rare circumstances where someone has a uh, severe neurological injury but not enough to be truly brain dead through their brain stem and um, therefore uh, not fully, not declared dead. But as I mentioned earlier, the uh, family and the treating physician agree that further um, treatment and ventilation uh, it will, is, is futile and cannot bring the person back and uh, they, say they don't want to be resuscitated. So then the normal decision in any ICU is to extubate that patient. Uh-huh. In the case of DCD donation, that extubation is done in the operating room and those um, individuals can uh, go on and then be donors. And in this last year in the U.S., roughly 20% of our almost 11,000 donors were in fact DCD donors. So we do a fair share of it here. And it is done to varying degrees in other countries. Um, it's a little, it's more challenging because the individual's um, heart needs to uh, stop and, and and be able to start the recovery procedure pretty in a pretty short order, usually within 30 to 45 minutes after extubation. Um, otherwise, the organs are no longer viable. Uh, but it does it does make a difference, and certainly has resulted in, in uh, uh, thousands of kidney transplants and, and, and liver transplants and the occasional um, heart and lung transplants these days. You know, that's very interesting, Tom. Well, we're in an interesting time right now because this week, um, and this show will be uh, posted in a few weeks, we had an executive order from President Trump, and he talked about uh, improving organ transplantation. Can you talk a little bit about what he was saying in uh, in regards to increasing the number of kidneys that will be available? Yeah, I think actually this is uh, this executive order has uh, some real possibility of uh, making some real benefits. Um, this has been worked on for months by the Department of Health and Human Services and Secretary Azar, who has a, uh, exhibited a strong personal interest in increasing transplantation in this country, um, and recognizing that Medicare pays for ninety plus percent of kidney transplants um, as a both an e- as an economic interest as well and. Uh, because transplants inevitably cost less than long-term dialysis. Uh, among the, the initiatives, and they really focus on kidney first, and the first one is trying to reduce some of the costs of, of dialysis and some of the, uh, uh, by trying to promote um, uh, in-home peritoneal dialysis rather than uh, dialysis uh, center-based uh, procedures. Um, at the same time, to get the, um, to change the reimbursement to dialysis centers uh, in part to help fund their education of, of, of patients in the opportunities of transplant. Um, far too many dialysis staff don't really know the criteria for, for, um, for which patients are good candidates for transplant, 
and uh, and seldom uh, enough uh, actually refer patients to transplant programs. And part of the, the number one initiative here is to make make those referrals happen more often and more successfully. The the other part is a, a large investment in and a very uh, smart one in trying to increase living donation. Um, living donation has been largely flat for the past seven, eight, nine years, and the, every it is well known that the disincentives of the uh, the costs of, uh, of taking time off from work for for donation, for recovery, for testing um, that fall on the donor far too often on the donor um, get in the way of actually making these gifts of life. So the uh, HHS is apparently going to make some efforts to try and offset those costs and, and remove those disincentives, and that hopefully will will help increase living donation. They're also going to be investing funds in uh, in trying to fast track development of artificial kidneys. Uh, for years, been a lot of work on this. I think we are um, we're away from having away from having a, a true replacement for kidney transplant, but there's some an awful lot of promising research. So that's that looks to be uh, a good initiative. On the um, on the deceased donation transplant side, they, uh, the the initiative the executive order speaks to trying to remove the barriers that happen uh, during organ offer, kidney offer to the transplant programs and kidney acceptance and recovery that results in far too many kidneys being discarded or not even recovered. And we in the OPO world, um, you know, we will we start here at One Legacy every year with 7,500 possible organ donor referrals in the hospitals. And through medical rule-outs and, uh, right, and, and the lack of... Um, uh, interest on the part of our transplant centers, that winnows down to about, last year, 515 organ donors. Wow. There, the, the majority of those will still get ruled out, but we know that there's probably another 50 to 200 possible organ donors if we, are to, if we, um, if we can change the criteria by which our transplant centers are judged. Right, yeah, the quality measures. <laughs> the quality measures that, um, that Medicare holds centers to we're based upon a, a, uh, a program that you used to use in orthopedics or centers of excellence, and they say, oh, this center had 95% success rate with the orthopedic graphs, and that was great for orthopedics. What it led to when it was applied to transplantation, it said, uh, looking at the centers with the highest rates, they ended up just, just, we ended up discovering that those centers had the most conservative transplant rates. So they right. were very successful, but they didn't transplant very many Well, they didn't want to take anything. that many organs. Yeah, they didn't want to take anything that wasn't perfect, right? Uh, kidney, like something. So, yeah, yeah. So, so the opportunity to take a 72-year-old kidney and to transplant it into a 75-year-old person, was, it's just not all because that would that would harm the, the outcome statistics of that center and get them in trouble with Medicare and their insurance carriers and so forth. This conservatism has resulted in, in a, uh, really a waste of the uh, viable and, and available organs and we in the OPO world are really excited about working with HHS and the transplant centers to change that. Well, and the transplant centers are already busy, so I hope uh, this initiative comes with some help for them to expand to meet the bandwidth, because I was number 65 at transplant clinic one day, and normally it only goes to, like, maybe the high 30s or early 40s. Um, so, uh, you know, they're going to have to grow quickly to meet the demand so that we, you know, nobody falls through the cracks. Yeah, that, that is one of the challenges here that um, that uh, transplant centers will need to invest more. But 
in most cases, transplant um, transplant procedures uh, are economically valuable and successful to medical centers, and uh, they should see the, uh, the any investments they make. Uh, made up fairly quickly as long as they continue to grow the number of transplants. Exactly. That's wonderful. Well, thank you, Tom. Um, anything you want to add that we didn't cover or uh, we'll, we'll po- provide a link on this um, webpage that this lands on for the podcast uh, to the journal article to read it in more depth. But anything else? Um, I just uh, want to say I appreciate the chance to, to uh, share what our research has shown that the U.S.'s opt-in system for organ donation uh, has resulted in some of the highest donation rates in the world of almost all of our U.S. states uh, exceeding the international means and uh, doing a, a remarkably good job of organ recovery. And now, ideally, with this new executive order to improve American kidney health and transplantation, we'll get to use more of those organs that we uh, are able to, uh, to uh, people are, uh, choose to give to try and give the gift of life. So we, we hope to to see us uh, perform even better in helping save and heal lives. Well, thank you, Tom, so much for sharing your uh, incredible, vast knowledge of organ donation policy. And I look forward to having a follow-up interview once we see some of this shake out. Excellent. Look forward to it. Thank you, Lori. Thanks for listening to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network. Please make sure to find us on Facebook or sign up for our newsletter at rsnhope.org. Kidney Talk is intended for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment from your physician. Always seek the advice of your own health care provider regarding your medical condition.